Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Bill Snow is a highly regarded authority in the field of mergers and acquisitions. Known for his extensive experience representing buyers and sellers across a wide range of industries. With a career spanning over 30 years, including nearly two decades as an investment banker, Bill has established himself as a trusted professional in the field. His expertise encompasses various aspects of M&A, including business sales, capital raises, and buy-side services for middle market companies. Throughout his career, Bill has worked with clients from diverse sectors, such as Waterworks Manufacturing, Value-Added Distribution, Packaging, Medical Supplies and Equipment, Automotive Parts, Drink Dispensing Equipment, Security, Apparel, Refined Fuels, and more. That's a broad range. He's also the author of Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies, a go-to resource for business owners and investors seeking a practical guide and real-world advice on navigating successful M&A transactions. Bill, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Thank you for having me. Boy, you really make my bio sound so official with that very proper reading voice. They're very nice. Oh. You should think about you should think about doing podcasts. You're pretty good at this. Exactly. It's funny. Even when I was younger, before before the days of podcasts, people used to say to me, You should be on the radio. And I didn't know whether to take that as my voice or put it on my face was yeah. not yeah. Was good for TV. Yeah, no, you yeah, you have a face for radio. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so listen, obviously our guests, our listeners are not going to have any question as to why you're a guest on the podcast with that introduction and that background. But before we get into all that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I'm sure an M&A investment banker and professional and author <laughs> was not it back then, but you tell me. Yeah. No, I always wanted to do M&A even as a little kid. No, that's a great question. It's a great way to start. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I'm still struggling with it at, at this advanced age here. No idea what I wanted to do. And it's it, maybe that's why when I talk to younger people, I try to help them figure out what they're good at, what they're bad at. If you've been interviewed by me, you probably heard me do that before, trying to get down to their strengths and weaknesses and not the platitudinous. I'm a people person. I work hard. And, and the usual weaknesses that people come up with is, it's a, it must phrase weakness in form of strength. Right. I work I work so hard, I irritate people, right? That's of all the things in the world, that's the only thing you do wrong. You irritate people because you're so good, right? But I had no idea. I was always good in math, liked math, got straight A's, top of the class, never studied, applied myself in that same manner elsewhere and did not do as well elsewhere. I have, I have a gift, I guess, in that. I've always enjoyed writing, but I didn't have anything to write. So I, it was a latent skill. So I had no idea when I was coming out of college what I wanted to do. I did sales jobs. I worked for a retailer in the Southeast. We were buying up mom and pop retail operations. That was a lot of fun. I decided I wanted to get into where do businesses start? How does that 
develop. So I got into entrepreneurship and I worked for angel funded companies, friend and family funded companies, venture funded companies. I worked for a matchmaker between venture capital and entrepreneurs, a purported matchmaker. And so you end up getting a lot of experience and learning a lot of things while you're beating your head against the against wall, trying to figure it out. And so the lesson there is always be a lifelong learner, be open to whatever comes your way. You never know when a good idea might come. I'm a big believer in something else. People always put these plans together. I want to do exactly what you do. And I always say, why? You couldn't put a plan together and have what happened to me happen because you have to be open to other opportunities. You have to constantly be showing that you have skills, offering things to other people, helping other people. And it's just amazing how doors open when you have that approach. So I had no idea. And I would not recommend anybody get into this this business. It's awful. It's quiet. It's not exciting. You will not like it. Go do something else. Yeah. I love it. I love it. One other question looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been something small when you were younger or early in your career or anything that's not <laughs> not necessarily like a sell a sale, but a deal of any type. <laughs> I, I I guess the statute of limitations has run out. So I I was the one in college who had the big parties and just have a lot of people. We had this decrepit three flat in Chicago that had a long litany of people abusing it for parties. And so I had some roommates and we had a bunch of people over and I thought, why did I get money from these other three knuckleheads that I'm now having, I did all the work anyway, now I'm having to split the profits. So we had more parties and I just would buy all the beer and set up everything and just make them move all their furniture away someplace else so we could have a lot. Of, so that was the first. So that was pretty good. And I would clear maybe a thousand bucks, which is real money back in the eighties for having some big free for all party. So I guess that was the first little entrepreneurial flair, but that was just to have fun as, as college kids. I love it. You and I have a little something, a little parallel there because I was, I was in college in the late seventies into the eighties. And, and I, the way it worked at Stony Brook University Back then, because back then the drinking age was 18, not 21. So most of us could drink, even though I started college at 17. And uh, the beer distributor out at Stony, out, out in, the, in that area, the main one, was didn't want to deal with 100 students. So they had one representative on each side of campus who, if you wanted beer kings delivered to the campus, which there were many, <laughs> you had to go through one guy. My last two years in college, I was the guy on my half of the campus. Oh, nice. And I got everything at a wholesale price from Plero's distributors, and I could sell it for whatever I wanted. And of course, I was the beer guy. So I got it to every everybody free. I had all the beer paraphernalia, the signs, the lights, all that stuff that people loved in the dorm rooms of college. So it was, yeah, it was a, it was a good, it was a good financial gig. And also definitely was a popular guy and had access to every point. Yeah. You had all the accoutrement, all the pictures and posters. We didn't have any of that kind of stuff. We were bare bones. That, that cuts into the profit. So you had someone else poning up all that kind of stuff too. So that's pretty smart. No, it was just bare bones, three bucks, all you could drink until somebody had a fight that I kicked everybody out. And yeah, it was a lot of fun in those days. Love it. There we go. All right. So listen, obviously, your bio gave a pretty clear picture of um, of the high level of what you do. But let's talk a little bit more. It seemed like there was such a diversity of industries that you've done deals in. And uh, is it also diverse geographically? What about deal size? All that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah, I would completely dispute you on that. I have a very specific industry that I've been going after. It's one of each is what I've been working <laughs> I, For a, a guy, obviously the drinking age at 18, where you come from, obviously has impaired you. You didn't figure that out. But clearly this was a an industry. No, and it's I've at times tried to focus on different things. I worked for smaller firms and it's catch can. 
And everybody's focused on having that industry experience. And there's certainly nothing wrong with it. It could be very helpful. But the industry that of experience that an investment banker needs is the industry of M&A, industry of selling a business. Because the selling a marketing company, selling a HVAC distribution company, guess what? The process is the same. The materials look the same. Maybe the balance sheet looks a little different. The buyer's list is going to be different. Of course, things like that. Yeah. But it's going to take about the same time. The contracts are all the same. Yeah, the numbers are different. It's a little details here and there are different. But it, you want to understand how to sell a business. You want to understand how to negotiate. And also some of the smaller firms, when you start focusing, here's the silo that I'm going to be in, then get these other deals. Well, he only does such, and we're an entirely different type of business. I've it, It's kind of helpful as well because getting a chance to write a Four Dummies book and some of the other speaking that I've done and some other things. I know a lot of people and I stay in touch with them with uh, with some emails, very creative emails. And that tends to churn up other opportunities. Again, it's the something else. I don't know what's going to come up, but there's other opportunities. And I'm sure I'm in Chicago, so a lot of stuff is here, not surprisingly, but I've had clients from coast to coast. And I've recently moved to a new firm, a larger firm, and we've got more bankers as well, which is nice to have a very robust team. And so if there's other opportunities that come up that might not line up with my experience, I've got other team members now that I can bring in and they can work on the deal too. So that's part of the reason why I wanted to make a change most recently. Oh, that's great. And uh, you buy a sentimental market and different people define that differently. So give us give us the range of sweet spot and the range of the deals, the sizes that you did. Sure. In a firm I used to be at, we were not allowed to say lower middle market, really, because it was middle market. Every, everybody has their own definition. So we define that middle market, lower middle market, whatever you want to call it, 10 million to 300 million in revenue. I would say probably you want 20 million now. It's getting difficult to place some of these smaller transactions, I hate to say. We used to want a minimum of a million of EBITDA, of earnings, basically. And those are difficult. So we'd like to see at least 2 million in earnings. You can also make exceptions, of course, but I, you, you want to have more meat on the bone. It's just really difficult to place some of these smaller transactions. It's a shame because they can be good companies, but it's just difficult to find buyers willing to dip into a smaller company. So give us, give us, what was your most interesting or, and a really interesting deal experience? <laughs> All of them. I've had a client, he was a great guy. It turned out he was a vampire and he would stay up all night uh, lived in the same building where the office was. He was trying to sell the business. And it was a nice business. It just it had run at a ground, which was a shame. He's a great guy. But I knew we were in trouble when I set up a meeting with a potential buyer. We never got the deal done. And it was nine o'clock in the morning. And he said that was too early. His commute was taking an elevator, I think six flights down, six floors down. <laughs> and he would just stay up all night. And it was on the computer talking to he had operations overseas over in the Far East just staying up all night doing that. So he was a vampire. So that that made it rather challenging. He was a good guy, though. It's a shame we never got a deal done. <laughs> that raises a broader interesting point, which is that a lot of times people who are not in the deal space think it's all about whether it's crunching numbers or whether it's negotiating or whether it's structuring. Um, but especially when you're talking about low middle market, middle market, and listen, even it's not immune even at the biggest size deals, you're dealing with people. Personalities, mindsets, limitations, egos. So, talk to us a little bit about that aspect of it, because I've heard other folks who, in this industry, I think lawyers say, like a lot of professionals say, that we're untrained psychologists as well. It's a big part understanding who you work with, and everybody's different, and everybody has different 
hot buttons and things that upset them or things that they're focused on or worried about different personalities. And so you have to figure that out as well. And frankly, that gives investment bankers, intermediaries, whatever you want to call us, a silly term. We do nothing with investments and we're not a bank, but we call ourselves investment bankers. But it gives us an opportunity because we get to play the role of the buffer. And I, I have had transactions where owner, great person, great guy, hot-headed, and he'd tell you he's hot-headed and he would lose his temper all the time. Well, we could be a buffer and he could go get upset with us, get upset at the buyer with us, and then we could mitigate that. We could soften that that discussion point. And, and a couple things happened on one of those transactions where never would have gotten done without an intermediary in the middle, just playing the role of the buffer. And so you can let the client vent as much as possible. Sometimes they have to. It's a fair thing that they're going through. They built the business and now people are poking and prodding and criticizing or they think they're being criticized. Of course, you're going to be emotional. I get it. It's, it's reasonable. But having someone in the middle, I think, is invaluable in terms of getting a transaction done. Yeah. And I think you're right. And a lot of people think, you know, I like the way you talked about it. And of course, it came from the prompt of my question, but a lot of people think it's valuable to have somebody in the middle because of their expertise to be able to analyze the structure and build spreadsheets or build models or build whatever. And th- and that's I'm not saying that's not valuable. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure, sure. But this aspect of, right, uh, and the way you described it, I, I, I love it. But it happens with us sometimes too as attorneys where you want to play that buffer and yeah, and the, yeah, and the client can, can let it out or whatever. And the best clients I had, I remember, <laughs> I remember a particular deal. It was a nice size deal. A entrepreneurial company, a guy had run it for 28 years or something. And it wasn't a huge deal. I think the purchase price is around $25 million on it. So it's a decent deal. It was a nice deal for him. He was, but, but he was self-aware enough to say that, he said, Corey, I'm going to be too stressed through this process. I'm not going to react well. Like He was self-aware enough to say that and know that. So I need you to take, I don't want direct dealings. I, I cut the very fundamental business deal, price, whatever. But I don't want like I I don't want to be on any of the calls. I don't want to be. I want you to handle it all. I want obviously you can talk to me behind the scenes. Yeah, but but you don't often you don't often have people who are that self aware about their own limitations. Sometimes. Yeah, no, that's true. It does happen sometimes. We had a deal years ago. Three owners, two older guys, more placid and calm, and they were more the operations type guys. And then they had a younger guy, younger, late forties, I think, and he was mile a minute just a sales guy, not surprisingly, type A, just lack of attention and lack of self-awareness. Sometimes great guy, but just would talk, would get diarrhea of the mouth. Excuse me. He would just run on and on and on. And so he knew this. And so when we were practicing for the management meetings, we'd ask him a question and then he would go and then he would not stop. And invariably he would start talking about something that you shouldn't talk about something untoward or just something that's not pertinent to the question. And he said, you guys have to help me, stop me, stop me. So what we did is I put him in the middle of his two other partners, the older guys. And I said, when he starts going and it's time for him to stop, just hands on the table, just tap him on the leg. And it worked like a charm because he would start in a story. This reminds you of a time that we were all lit up down in New Orleans. And then he would stop right in the middle of it because somebody <laughs> tapped him on the leg and then we would continue the meeting. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing. Uh, obviously, it's been an interesting. I did a probably just it aired a few weeks before recording this, which means that it probably well, by the time this airs, it'll probably be two three months ago. I did in July. We released an episode where I did the recap on the first half of the year in the deal mine the M and A market based upon statistics. I read articles and different things in my personal experience. 
And one of the things that, you know, that globally and domestically is certainly on the big deal side, deals, deal flow is down from a boom time the last couple of years. Valuations in certain sectors are down, although things like AI and other are very different. Just talk about certain deals being obviously restructured to de-risk for the buyer. What are you seeing? Because I, I think it's useful, and it's the reason I do it, to report on these sort of macro sort of numbers. But of course, deal making, like they say, real estate's local. Deal making is somewhat, depending upon deal size, industry, geography, whatever, you could have a totally different experience than what's happening at the macro level. So what are you seeing in some of your sectors yeah. in terms of the how things are trending? Yeah, this question comes up all the time too, the macro question. Business owners always want to be the smartest guy in the room. They want to time the market and buy at the lowest and sell at the highest. I call that the trader's curse. I've got friends who are traders and they just all say if they have the inside knowledge of everything that everyone else doesn't because they have to be quicker. You watch them drive a car, they can't change lanes fast enough because they can't make up their mind because they see little advantage here or perceived advantage. The mistake that business owners will make is looking at using the terms like deal flow. Okay, which is a term that I actually don't like. To me, it sounds like you've got a wound. Can somebody give me some gauze? This deal on my leg is flowing again. It's making a mess. It sounds passive as if it's just something that happens like the rain or cold weather or whatever. M&A is microeconomic. It's not macro. Oh, yeah, the macro certainly things in the economy can impact it, right? Interest rates have gone up. The cost of capital has gone up. That tends to put downward pressure on price. I've been forecasting that. A lot of other people have too. That's not, that's just basic economics 101, but it's microeconomic. And so what a business owner who's thinking about a sale or thinking about somewhere down the line, I want to sell the business. Don't worry so much about the macro. Worry about your company. A good company in a bad economy will command a premium. Okay. People will still want to buy. And the check there is a struggling company down. The sales are dropping, profits are dropping, management leaving, big concentrations, all the issues, all the problems that put downward pressure on price. That struggling company, that bad company in a great economy will struggle to get bids. So it's not about the economy. Yeah, it can have an impact. Sure. It's microeconomic. Focus on making your company valuable to somebody else. Yeah, love that. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So let's talk about some of those factors. I'll be outside of just increasing EBITDA, right? What are some of those factors that make companies more valuable? Sure. The first is an owner who can be replaced. So if an owner is integral or viewed as integral to the ongoing operation of the business, runs the sales and runs the production and the design and the finance and the marketing, pop on and on somebody buys the business, what am I going to get when this person leaves? This person is the business. So owner, make yourself expendable. That's the first thing I always say. You want to look at things like concentration. So quite often a business that has a big concentration with a customer, that's not necessarily, that's not to say you can't get that done, but that's probably going to make some buyers give them pause. You know, we're going to pass. We can't deal with the 50% concentration. If that customer fires us, 
boy, we're in big trouble. So you have to find a, maybe a buyer that has a concentration elsewhere that can absorb that big concentration. That's one of the techniques that you want to do. A management team, not only the owner, but do they have a management team? Are they all about ready to retire? Who's going to run the ship when the owner is gone? Those sort of things. Certainly the growth of the business, you want to see is the business growing, both the top line, bottom line, is that sustainable? What's going on with that? And also what's the margin? So yeah, maybe it's a nice EBITDA margin, but it's 3 million of, uh, not margin, but nice EBITDA, maybe it's 3 million of EBITDA and 100 million in sales. What's 3%? That might give people some pause to how come it's not more profitable. So those are just a few of the things that, that business owners should be able to focus on to, to make their company worth more. So listen, we may come back to more of the M&A direct stuff, but I want to there's only so many people that get to write any of the Four Dummies books, and, and certainly for this podcast, M and A for Dummies. So, I, it, it give us a story about how that came about. I wanted just it's just curious and it's interesting to you know sure. directed towards obviously, and then sure. three, listen, doing a book is a deal in and of itself, right? And we talk about all types of deals on the podcast, not just M and A and capital raising. So yeah, let's explore this. Uh, I I have a prop here. So if anybody wants to buy it, make sure you get the purple cover. That's the new edition. Second edition came out end of May. And here's, it's funny. People always ask, how did you get the deal? Did you approach Wiley? No, I didn't. Did you write the book and sell it to him or pitch the idea? No, I didn't. My, My favorite, and this is the biggest insult. People say this all the time. I do get really upset at them. How did you get around the copyright? Somebody owns all that four dummy stuff. (laughs) So the lineage of that goes back to and to something I wrote it was 20 years ago. I can't believe that. And it's developed into a philosophy that's very much in the marketing that I do and the outreach that I do and trying to stay in touch with people. So I was in the venture capital game, as I, I mentioned a long time ago, and I had a meeting that didn't go well. Chairman of this company said, what the blank do you know about venture capital? And it, it was just a bad meeting. And I was so upset at myself that I didn't do a better job of explaining that. I, I had this little article that I it was just an idea. And I thought, I'll go finish that article. And then that turned into a two-part, five, 10-part. I'll make it a book. I'm going to weave a narration through it, have some fun with it. And I didn't know what to do with it. I did that in about a month. I was just really obsessed with getting this thing done. And I called it Venture Capital 101. I put it in a PDF, saved it as a PDF and sent it out, emailed it and all over the place. It got all over the internet. And I was a very minor viral hit before that was a term. And I remember thinking, if I knew what I was doing, I could do something here. So it was an interesting thing. A few years later, I had morphed into middle market investment banking. And a couple of years after that, Wiley contacted me. So that little book on venture capital got to Wiley. Somehow, they were looking for someone to write a book, LBOs for dummies. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then as, and we worked out the contract, actually. And as I was thinking about it, I thought LBO, that's just a form of finance thing. They have done it. I think someone did write that book, but I, I was thinking maybe we should make it broader instead of just looking at a fight, a way of financing an acquisition. Let's look at the whole process of buying and selling. And so I went back to Wiley and, and their idea for LBOs for dummies. I said, who would buy that book? And they said, all those guys on Wall Street who do those billion dollar deals. And I said, there's six of them and I'm not going to teach them anything. And so I said, how about uh, mergers and acquisitions for dummies. They said, that's a stupid idea, Bill. Who would buy such a stupid book? I don't know. Business owners, hundreds of thousands of them, You know, the students, people who want to be investment bankers for some crazy reason, and probably a much bigger audience. So that's a stupid idea, Bill. So the whole thing fell apart. That was in 08. Two years later, they called me up and they said, Bill, we have a new idea. We thought of it, not you, because we're in Hoboken, New Jersey. We can think of this kind of stuff. You can't because you're in cow country in Chicago. The planes just fly over you. Nobody lands there. We can think of this stuff, not you. I'm really not exaggerating this other conversation when they said, 
mergers and acquisitions for dummies. And I said, that is absolutely brilliant. How do you guys think of that? We're from Hoboken, Bill. We can think of this kind of stuff. You can't. And I said, could I write that book? Hey, maybe. So I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's how the whole deal came together to write the book. And actually the real dirty pool on this is they said, we'll put together a, a outline. So I put together an outline and they kept rejecting these outlines. This was the summer of 10, kept rejecting them. And they kept asking for page numbers. How many page numbers in each chapter? What you learn is you have no ideas. Just make numbers up. I put 45. You can't have 45. It has to be an even number. Okay. How about 46? It has to be, has to be 44. Okay. 44. That's too much. How about 24? Yeah. 24. I sound like Frank Pantangeli from Godfather. Yeah. Michael Corleone, this, 44 pages, that, whatever they need to hear, I was going to say. And they kept rejecting these outlines. And so the guy said, okay, I've got a sense of the material now because I've been reading these horrible outlines that just don't make any sense. So I'll turn one in. I said, okay, fine. I thought, okay, now this thing's definitely dead. And he shows me this outline. It's a complete disaster. It makes no sense. And I thought, okay, there, there goes my chance to be an author. Great. He turns it in. The worst thing that ever happened to me happened. They approved it. There's a grand poobah, I think, at the publisher. And they pay fealty and they put the proposal down and they count down on this kind of stuff. So I had to write the book. So the only other Four Dummies book I can write is how to write a Four Dummies book for dummies. So if you ever <laughs> are in that position where you have to write a book and the outline's been approved and it makes no sense, you have to have confidence in yourself, number one. And then the second thing you do is don't look at email and don't answer the phone. Because I started turning in chapters that did not line up with what was approved. And there were some freakouts in Hoboken, I'm sure. And so after I turned it enough, the big thing in publishing is they're afraid of hiring somebody who doesn't finish the book. They are death. They will publish something that's bad as opposed to not having something. So hopefully the book has been well-received. I think it is good. I'm very uh, thankful. I'm having a little fun at Wiley's expense. They've been great. They're a great publisher and it's great working with the editors and the proofreaders and they put that stuff together. But you, you got to have confidence in yourself and your ability and the vision that you have. And I guess I have that. That's great. And listen, uh, let's just we'll stick on the book thing just for a, a little longer because I often get questions about everybody says they want to write a book, right? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember it was actually a pretty sort of small touching moment for me. So I've got one of my clients and friends is David Bach, who's written 10 New York Times bestsellers, Automatic Millionaire, Smart Women Finish Rich, et cetera, et cetera. The, the latte fact was his latest one. So super successful author and guy in general and whatever. And I told him I was going to write a book and I went to dinner with him and I wanted to get some advice. And then and I thought nothing of it. He was very generous with his time. And I, I wrote my authentic negotiating book and I got it published. And he, I sent him a copy. He blurbed it for me and I sent him a copy. And he sent me a video, which he was so excited. He said, congratulations. I'm so proud of you. It's so great. And he like, yeah, which was nice of him. But it was really like, and what he said was, he said, you could not imagine how many people tell me they're going to write a book. And none of them do it. It's not even. It's not even like it's thirty percent or twenty percent, ten percent. It's like it's not. It's like none of them do it. The fact that you actually got this thing done, and listen, having written a book, you jokingly alluded to it. It's a journey. It's a body of work to get it done and have it be good, to have it be published, and to and all that stuff. Yeah, but so I, I have all these people ask me, and then also this all these misconceptions about I'm making an assumption that you're not retiring off of the share of the book revenue. For, well, all contrary on Fred. Not at my little level. No, no. <laughs> yeah. So talk about this a little bit because you said you speak and you do things. So I've talked about this a little bit. I just want to spend one more second on the book thing. So how is you, I've always said to folks, listen, you got if you're going to do a book, don't do what most people do, right? Write a book and then their parents and their cousin buy it and then they hand out a few copies to clients and they spend a lot of time with it. Put a business model around it. The business model is not just, oh, I'm going to write it and people are going to buy it. So you're talking about speaking a little bit. What, what have you done to put a business model around the 4W's book? 
uh, yeah, that's something I could probably do a better job of. I've got this day job too, working right. working right. M and A deals too. But I do this as a feeder to to generate opportunities as yeah. as well. And so I I haven't done a Vistage presentation in a while, but I've I've been approved by them. I've done a lot of those speaking. And right before the pandemic, I was going overseas. I'd made the two trips in 19 and then 20, right before the pandemic, when everyone else lost their minds. I didn't lose my mind, by the way. And I went to Malaysia, Dubai, was doing M&A presentations there. I had uh, was talking to a group in Jordan. I thought, my God, I'm going to go everywhere. This is great. And then, of course, all that ended. So I thought that would be, uh, you get paid for that too. Sure. And so I would like to get back to being able to do that. I actually, I hired a PR firm. That's how they found me or how they found you. And you got suckered yep. it, suckered it <laughs> at talking to me. You are, you damn, you <laughs> damn fool there. You start drinking beer at 18 years old. You're a college beer schlepper, you. But yeah, you know, that's, I want to get back to doing that the last couple of years. It's not for lack of on my side in terms of travel. It's just these things that I was doing have just dried up and have changed and so forth. But yeah, I want to get back into doing regular presentations because I'm a do I'm a big believer that if I'm talking about the business stuff that I talk about, you put me in a room of enough business owners, hundred business owners, let's say a hundred aren't going to hire me. Might one or two or three raise their hand and say, that's interesting. I'd like to talk to you about something. And if I can do that enough, I think I can create enough opportunities. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And listen, that's the same thing I've done, right? I leverage, even if I go to this podcast, the biggest thing, somebody, people, somebody said to me, Hey, you've really grown. You get you know, it's up one percent on listed notes, all this stuff out of three million podcasts world. You know, why don't you do advertising in your podcast? And I said, Because advertising is gonna pay me four dollars or four hundred, four thousand, whatever the number is. It's not it's not worth changing the character of this thing, and that's not where I make my money. I don't make I don't monetize the podcast that way. It's different. Yeah. Yeah. Me, I, I got a client that does an M and A deal, right? You want a year and I get more than that from doing this. And frankly, a lot of the times it's even from the guest relationships, even more so than the listeners. And it keeps me top of mind and it does all this other good stuff. I'm, I'm going to make multiples, multiples of any advertising revenue. So people, I'm always fascinated by this because there's people have misconceptions about why you do certain things and how the models are set up. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and that activity that, that you talk about, just making a note here, is so important in, in any kind of marketing because that's one of the things that people, I think, fall down on. For me, there, there's five things. Hope I remember them because I wrote this. Uh, you need to be uh, professional. You need to be knowledgeable. You need to be honest and ethical. All those sort of things. You also need to be active because if you're not active enough, nobody knows. And then the the other piece that I think a lot of people fall down on is memorable. You need to be memorable. And if you're forgettable, if you blend in, you know, if you try your best to be like everybody else, that to me is boring. You're never going to stand out. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. You'll never stand out if you tried to fit in or whatever, something like that. So that's a big part. You've got to have all five of those things working, I think, in concert with each other. If you want to be a successful marketing yourself, a product, a service, that activity thing, because that is the one. Talk to commercial bankers. They are calling people, buying them lunch and sending them articles and taking them golfing and they're doing everything and then they get busy and they realize, oh, I haven't called that guy in six months and they call him and the guy says, Oh, I'm glad you called. I needed a new line of credit. And uh, this kid called me yesterday that I have no idea. And that's why I hired him. Isn't that great? And you think, because he's the last guy to walk by the room. Yeah, now I'm ready. Come on in. So that 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 high degree of activity, you've got to have that activity. And frankly, that's the thing that used to drive me crazy in the old days before the book and the podcast and the social media stuff I did. 
was whenever I didn't do a good job staying top of mind that a client who liked me or a prospect who liked me and whatever just went to the other guy because they happen to be, yeah, they happen to walk by more recently. So I want to tie this back back to the M&A side because it's interesting. One of the things that I find on the buy side, right, especially in, so we we, we do, we're like, yeah, we've done that, you name it in the industry. I've done billing, cleaning, maintenance to art licensing to vitamin, but we do a lot in financial services and in tech. And in the financial services space, especially the wealth management space, it's been a hot industry. And even with things cooling a little bit, it's still, there's a lot of PE money that's come in. There's a lot, oh, yeah. you know, we're really busy in that. And I have clients who say, oh, I want to start acquiring, right? I want to start buying. And they're not PE back, right? So first of all, they've got to figure out how they compete or not compete, differentiate really from the PE back, big money buyers. But also this conversation that we're having on how you differentiate yourself as an individual, as a professional, applies in the M&A field as well, especially on the, especially in a hot market. I always say to them, listen, there are going to be a lot of candidates, a lot of buyers out there. What is your differentiating factor that would have somebody want to sell to you? And listen, obviously a differentiating factor on the sell side, if you're the seller, also affects valuation. Yeah, you want to talk about a little, anything you... You think about around that or some experience? Sure. What I would get the younger guys at the firm to say when I was at another firm, when a buyer, when we're selling something and a buyer says, what's so special about the company? And I would say, it's a company and it's for sale. That's what's special. Okay. Because the inverse of that, the flip of that is trying to make acquisitions, as you probably know, is very difficult. Acquisition work, and that's why I'm not picking any of this deal flow comment that you had out there, but it may, it makes it just sound like it, it goes on. It goes up, it goes down. Okay. But making acquisitions, you've got two sides. You've got selling businesses, you've got buying businesses. Those are two different things. They're related, of course, but they're different. When you're buying a business, you have three main buckets of work. You have search, you have negotiate, you have finance. Okay. Yeah. Finance Money is out there. You can get money, especially if you've got a sizable business. The money is quite often the easiest bit. You can find the yeah. money. The negotiate, that's the fun part. Man, that's great fun. The part of the acquisition process that gets the short shrift, it's the most miserable part, but it's probably the most important. That's the search. Nobody wants to do the search. Okay. These PE firms, they hire these kids that have been suckered into getting these expensive, fancy MBAs and they think they're special because of it. They get a job from a PE firm. They think this is great. And what's your job when you're the low man on the totem pole at a PE firm? You got to call jerks like me asking for deals. And it's a miserable existence. They get phone reluctance. I can set my watch to when it's four o'clock on Friday afternoon, because that's when the PE guys start calling me desperate to hit their quotas because they've had phone reluctance all week because it's miserable. It's different. And everybody says, we got money and industry experience. Who cares about industry experience, right? We got money and industry experience and we want to buy you. That's what everybody says. Exactly. And, and it is so hard for people to get around that, to come up, we call it a thesis, come up with a thesis. Not that you have money and you want to make acquisitions because everybody has money. And they want to make acquisitions. What is the thesis? Are you seeing something in the industry, something unique? Hey, I want to talk to you about it. Corey, you're an expert in this. Could I buy you lunch? And what I always tell people, if you can offer them something else, a lot of business owners play golf. If you're doing this, and you don't play golf. You know, you need to find something else because that's where things go on. And you need to get yourself one of those expensive golf courses, country clubs, really exclusive. And you could say, hey, do you want to come play such and such? Because if you do that enough, you can have some conversations and now you're offering something. And then if you're artful enough, you get them on the golf course, and you're joking around, you're having fun. And if you're artful enough, you can start steering it to what do you want to do with the business? That's just one technique. But you got to have, you got to have a thesis, something to talk about. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And uh, yeah, the most successful acquirers I work with definitely do. They have that thesis. They have a differentiator. They have the way they do things and they realize what some newer folks don't realize is that the ability to have a clear thesis that people can opt in or opt out of, that the opt out part is as good as the opt in part. Because then you don't waste your time on people who don't buy right. your thesis or your model. Yeah, exactly. And that, that kind of goes into the chemistry aspect of it as well. So that's, if you don't like the person, if you don't like the investment banker that you're interviewing, if you don't like that potential buyer, whatever, don't hire them because it's going to be miserable. If you basically, it's a marriage. If you don't like the person, don't get married. If you don't like the person, don't do a deal with them. So it starts with that. There's a lot of other factors too, but it really should start with the chemistry. Love it. Well, listen, we could talk for hours and hours about this stuff. <laughs> both, both you and I love it and, uh, and spend time in it and live in it and are passionate about it. But we do have a, we're on a podcast and then we're going to wrap it up soon. Before I ask you my final two questions, anything else, whether it's about your business or whether it's about the market, whether it's about anything, whether it's a book, whatever it is, anything else that, you know, be useful for the audience so that you're dying to tell us? <laughs> Where to start? The first thing is put your plan together. Okay. So if you're a business owner and you're thinking about selling a business, a lot of times they will get these overtures, these random samples of one. Okay. Finding a buyer is not difficult. That's not the hard part of the process. A lot of times, hey, I found the buyer. I just, I'll just pay you some hourly. You just button it up, make it look good for me. I did all the hard work. I found the buyer. How'd you find the buyer? They called me. Yeah. I had no idea. It's, it, that is the easiest part. What I tell people is finding a buyer is easy. Getting a deal done that makes sense for the seller, that is really difficult. So put your plan together. Don't just be reactive to other people. You should be polite and professional, of course, but don't just be reactive and try. Here's their idea. Let's try jury rig their idea into what works for me. Put all that aside, figure out what you want to do. You want to retire. You want to sell the whole thing. You want to sell a piece. You want to work for whatever that is. There's no right or wrong in putting those things together, but you have to put your plan together, communicate that. The market responds to clarity. Okay. That's something a, a former company used to say. It's a great line. The market responds to clarity, put your plan together and then go seek the partner that best lines up with what you want to accomplish. Great advice. Great advice. How about that? So Bill, if people want to find out more about you, and I'm sure they will, not only based upon your experience, but you're, you're a fun guy to talk to. What, what If they want to find out about any stuff, the bug, where should they go? Yeah. Oh, you got all kinds of choices. You can always find me at billsnow.com, or as some people say, billsnow.com. Why would I want to pay bills now? But it's billsnow.com. You can find me at my firm, the investment banking firm, that's focusbankers.com, Focus Investment Bankers. Great firm. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me on LinkedIn. Just type in Bill Snow. You'll probably find me real quick there. You can find me on Amazon. Just type in Bill Snow and you'll probably find me real quick. Awesome. So Bill, my final question on the podcast is about my highest value in life, my highest ideal, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from oppression from all people in the world to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Freedom means doing what you want to do and not being second-guessed at every turn. Because what I learned is that I have to trust myself and my instincts, and I can't parrot somebody else's words. Just as someone might, something might work for me, but if someone else tries to parrot what I'm saying, it might not work. So you have to follow your heart. That sounds kind of corny, but be true to yourself. Say things in your words 
have confidence in your abilities. That's why I get rankled when I get all these LinkedIn overtures and it's always kids. I want to do exactly what you do. It's never going to work. So I'm not even, I'm not even going to bother. I wrote a book, Networking is a Curable Condition, one of those little almost freebies I gave away. So you can look that up, Networking is a Curable Condition, which talks about how I got into investment banking and some of the other things that I did to shore up my strengths and weaknesses. What am I good at? What am I bad at? And, and be able to utilize that knowledge to help me advance. Love it. Bill Snows, thanks for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest 